Does it feel different to be up there without a rope? It's obviously like much higher consequence. People who know a little bit about climbing, they're like, oh, he's totally safe. And then people who really know exactly what he's doing are freaked out. I've thought about all cap like for years, and every yeah. year I'm like, that's really scary. I'll never be content unless I at least put in the effort. El Cap is the most impressive wall on Earth. It's 3,200 feet of sheer granite. It's the center of the rock climbing universe. Obviously, I get interview questions about it all the time. Oh, would you like to do that? And you're like, yes, for sure. Last year, I had the joy of visiting Yosemite National Park in California. It was a direct result of my having watched Ken Burns' National Park TV series. Simply put, that incredible documentary fired my imagination for a road trip that culminated in me spending a few days walking through that valley. It's left me hooked for life and the next trip is all very much in the planning phase. And through a variety of Instagram subscriptions, I became aware of the film Free Solo about climber Alex Honnold's attempt to climb El Capitan Yosemite unaided. And yes, that means with no ropes. Now, having stood at the bottom of El Capitan, the fear of God was put in me. I don't like heights, especially when looking up at them for some reason. And I thought, what kind of an idiot would attempt such a thing? Well, as it happens, a very likeable one. Now, Alex Honnold is not a normal human being. And by that, I mean he is not like you or I or anyone else that we know. He's a unique collection of cells that have created a true oddity of physical and mental perfection that has created a human being who can look up at El Capitan and ask not how I'm going to climb it, but when am I going to climb it? And Free Solo is a testament to this incredible achievement, but it's also a fascinating look at it, what it takes to even consider doing such a thing. Now, documentaries like this, as far as I'm concerned, need two basic elements. They have to have incredible visuals and a compelling protagonist. And in this case, they have an abundance of both. Filmmaking team Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai have created a documentary that celebrates Arnold, but doesn't try to overly think his motivation or intellectualize what he has done. Now, the film does have a look back at his childhood, and for sure, there it's a home that is perhaps worthy of some study. No one in his, either his mother or his father ever said the love word to him, and his father was probably had undiagnosed Asperger's, whose real passion was for traveling, but also crucially encouraging his son's interest in climbing. It certainly isn't a terrible childhood, it just was a little bit different, and it doesn't seem to have overly affected Alex, who looks back at the period with fondness for his falling in love with the sport that would become his calling in life. Living out of a van, he travels around climbing. Girlfriends come and go, and some think he has attachment issues and emotional problems, but really it's quite clear he just wants to climb and be outdoors, challenging himself. We do join him, however, in the film when he has a new lady in his life, Sani, who he met at a book signing. Here the documentary finds a nice juxtaposition of the domestic and the incredible. 
He may be dangling off a cliff somewhere, but every now and then he has to deal with the norms of life. And here it is the film often finds its most humorous and oddly touching moments. Sani accidentally causes him to have an accident, after which Alex calmly intones he actually considered ending the relationship, but love, but a sort of love begins to blossom. Now I've recently rewatched Michael Mann's Heat, and there's a touch of the Neil Macaulay in Alex. Sunny asks him if he had something in his life that truly mattered to him, i.e. his love of her. Would he give up free climbing? No comes his immediate response. Why would it, as she sits there looking somewhat disappointed at his rather honest answer? And death is ever-present in the film. If he falls, he will die. And we even see a montage of free soloists or free climbers, I'm not quite sure what the correct term is, who have died at various times over the years, some of whom he actually knows quite well. Does any of this put him off? No, of course not. He even observes that were he to die in just a normal accident or just through health reasons, no one would really care. It would only matter if he actually died on the job. Now, Sally, for me, kind of became an emotional cipher in the film. You come to care about Alex, and his friends and climbing partners certainly do, and he has a real bond with them, including a hilarious shot of him and climber Tommy Caldwell sat in bed together like a married couple. And he's also good friends with the filmmakers themselves, whose children he simply doesn't know quite how to deal with. And for all his emotional distance from Sunny, he clearly, in his own way, adores her as much as he possibly can. And she kind of accepts this and never really kind of tries to dissuade him from attempting his various climbs, which also does culminate in an incredibly touching moment where having left him on the day of his ascent, she bursts into tears at the thought of losing him. What's clear is that Alex is sinkersy focused on his life, which is to climb. It is what he is there to do. Now, he is also wealthy, but he's just happy living in a van. He is likeable and well-liked, but he appears to have no real need of friendships in the traditional sense, which isn't to say he's rude or arrogant. He is just who he is, and everyone in the film accepts this. It's why I think Free Solo works so well. It's a good mixture of observational and more carefully crafted scenes in its intimate moments that introduce you to his world and let you appreciate who he is. There's a brilliant scene where after him and Alex and Sunny go house hunting, they sit in a van with Sunny, obviously annoyed that she yeah, that he didn't help her measure space for a refrigerator. Typical callous smell. Well, as we see a little bit later, he has no real concept of how to even make a cup of coffee and eats food from a spatula directed out the saucepan. And here is the thing. He isn't just a normal guy. He's more likely in his mind climbing mountains or considering the best way to ascend another peak. And it's in this aspect that the film truly soars as well, because make no mistake, this is a climbing film. And at this part, we need to talk about its visuals, because by God, they are incredible. After visiting the national parks, I made the proclamation when I got home that nothing can really ever do them justice, not photos or videos. And I was wrong. This is a film that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible, because by God, does Yosemite worship the camera here. Alex calls it the most beautiful valley in the world, and it is. And what truly defies belief is how intimate the film goes into Alex's attempt. How does he cling to the wall? Well, by millimetres at times. And, and throw in some well-placed camera work and drone shots, we see how these millimetres soon disappear when the camera pans out to show Alex clinging to the side of El Capitan like some superhuman insect. There were gasps in the cinema that I was in, some from me too, and the film actually promoted a physical reaction from me. 
My palms sweated. I shuffled in my seat. But mercifully, the film takes its time and it lets the images sink in and draw you in and blow your mind. It's a common flaw I find in extreme sports films. You have a cliched new metal soundtrack and a bombardment of visuals. Here you don't have that. It's measured, it's calculating, and you're able to see the feat for what it is. If you pardon the pun, it is gripping stuff. As I sat in my chair, concerned for Alex, the film reached moments of near absurdity when he actually laughs to himself at the madness of what he is doing. Indeed, as one of the crew who is watching points out, he's actually having the best day of his life. And he is, because spoiler alert, he does make it. But the film never over-philosophies what he's doing. It just shows it for what it is. A superhuman feat of frankly epic proportions that has Alex beaming for joy like a child after what he has done. And then we do get the call to Sani. When will he say the L word to her? Well, that's for you to find out. But needless to say, Free Solo was an absolute joy to watch. It's emotional, it's awe-inspiring, and it's touching and highly inspirational film that celebrates the incredible in the most human way possible. Michelangelo Antonioni, one of the great film artists of this generation, now takes you on a fascinating and spellbinding journey into identity. Michelangelo Antonioni first came to me through La Ventura. It was one of those films that you know is going to be one of your favourites. It wasn't immediately apparent to me to what the film was about. It still isn't, to be honest with you, and it's a rare work that every time I see it, I take something new away from it. For instance, my last... For instance, on my last visit to it, I was captivated as to what those guys are doing, staring at Monica Vitti, as if they'd been somewhat temporarily possessed by her. And interestingly enough, I've recently just watched Zabriskie Point, in which there is a scene in which a group of children surround a woman, and it made for one of the most uncomfortable viewing experiences I've had in a long time. But I could see the through line from La Ventura to that, and it's one of the joys that I found going back over his films. But Leventura is an odyssey. A girl goes missing on an island with a group of friends and we never see her again. Yet come the end of the film, you could be forgiven for thinking the first 30 minutes belong to another film entirely. It's a mood piece. It's not about narrative how we would normally expect. And it can make for quite a painful watch for the uninitiated. Yet, as I said, it has always captivated me. It's refusal to adhere to any conventions to make it daring and bold piece of cinema that makes you work hard, first to appreciate it, and then I have come to, to actually worship it. It's reminded me how cinema shouldn't be about a set of rules, both visually and narratively, and Liventure has had a spell over me ever since I saw it so long ago. I convinced a friend to watch it who said it was a boring load of meandering nonsense about a bunch of rich people so out of touch they barely notice that the other one actually exists, and that it was made for twats like me, who like to feel smug about the fact I like those types of films and not The Breakfast Club. And he was right on almost every point, and I was somewhat annoyed that after one screening he had actually seemed to work out what the film was about. And it's always quite annoying when someone sees through your pretense in such a brutal and honest way. And he's right, I do actually hate The Breakfast Club. 
But whatever, Michelangelo Antonioni is one of my favourite directors. The trilogy of La Ventura, La Notte and Laclise represent, in my opinion, him at the very height of his powers, before ushering a new area that starts with Blow Up in 1966, Zabriskie Point in 1970, his documentary China in 1972, and then onto Passenger in 1975. Now, I wouldn't say that these films are bad, far from it, they are just different from what I had seen before. I liked him in Italy with these beautiful film stars. It's an Italy of cocktail dresses, social gathering, and seemingly abandoned towns and cities. Blow Up, Zabriskie Point and The Passenger were contract films that he made with producer Carlo Ponti to make films in the English language. Blow Up was a huge hit. Zabriskie Point was an expensive failure. Yet The Passenger is the most like the Michelangelo Antonioni I fell in love with Leventura, and the casting of Jack Nicholson would appear at least to be an attempt at giving the film some commercial viability outside the narrow art house crowd. Its recent theatrical re-release seemed a perfect opportunity to go back and have a reappraisal. I was not that keen on the film when I first saw it, however it seems I may have not quite got it the first time round, or at least I might not have been quite in the mood for it. The passenger plot reads like a cross between a Jean Le Carre and Tom Clancy novel. David Locke, played by Jack Nicholson, is an American photojournalist making a documentary covering a war in Africa. Back at his hotel, he meets a man who looks a bit like him. The man, called Robertson, dies and Locke swaps identities with the deceased and heads to Europe. Only there's an issue. Robertson was in fact an arms dealer who was selling arms to the rebel in the war and Locke, using Robertson's old notebook, travels around Europe keeping the arrangements contained within it. He takes down payment for an arms deal but soon the situation begins to escalate. Without delivering the arms, he becomes a marked man and in Spain he meets a young student played by Maria Schneider, whose name we never find out, who quickly becomes his lover and helps him avoid the local police and keep the ruse up. He has another problem on top of this. His wife, Rachel, and best friend Tony have discovered the fact that there might be something amiss, and now Rachel and Tony are heading to Spain to find him. Can he outrun his wife and the rebels? Now, this all sounds on the edge of your seat stuff, then, but you have to prepare yourself for your expectations to be slightly altered. The Passenger, by its premise, is a kind of thriller. It has all the trademarks, stolen IDs, arms deals and even some karate based killing yet Jason Bourne this is not it's a Michelangelo Antonioni film after all now Locke's decision to escape his life and start a new one is not seemingly born of an innate desire to start again but moreover it seems he is more interested in simply wanting to inhabit another person's life if he wanted to truly get away he would head for the furthest reaches of South America or Asia or somewhere like that and instead he takes Robertson's notebook and literally tries to live another man's life as well as ducking in and out of his own. Now you need to go into the film on its terms and not what you think it's going to be about because we have of course this thriller plot with Jack Nicholson in the lead role and the passenger did have a relatively large budget but it is most definitely the work of an auteur. Simply watch the opening of the film. We see Locke pull up in a jeep, and what does the camera do? When it pans to the left, away from what we think the action is going to be, instead we just focus on someone completely unrelated to the film, just a person who moves through the frame. And almost immediately, you begin to feel like an interloper into this story, 
just as Jack Nicholson, the filmmaker character, is an interloper into this world, as well as the world of other peoples. Because everything about The Passenger feels completely observational in nature. You don't get any point of view shots. No sense that we are seeing the world from any character's perspective. We observe the scenes with a kind of detachment that, coupled with the reservedness of the performance, functions as a kind of disconnect between how we experience them. This is not a typical Jack Nicholson performance. He is always seemingly reining it in, which is apparently something which Michelangelo Antonio wanted. The only scene we really kind of see where he loses it is when his car gets stuck in the desert. But other than that, this is the most reserved Jack Nicholson possibly I've ever seen. No one in the film is particularly that likeable, or indeed overly unsympathetic, and indeed I don't think they're supposed to be. These are people who perhaps we can kind of rationalise with to more than a degree than to really kind of get under their skin. Locke does not appear to have a terrible life, or on the evidence that has been provided. He is just given the opportunity to inhibit someone else's, and it's a kind of voyeuristic quest he undertakes. What would we do if we could start again? And I think the film plays on a kind of universal truth in this. To a degree, especially in the modern age, we are always trying to be someone else, especially with all the social media accounts that we have. We post intimate details of our life and indeed at times envy and possibly become jealous of other people's. And I think all of us, to a degree, through the age of social media, have adopted different personas in varying degrees. Now, Locke knows nothing of Robertson's life, but he soon finds it has something that his does not. He could, at any point, drop the identity. Yet, upon finding out that he was an arms dealer, he decides to take on the persona of Robertson even more. He doesn't seem to discover anything about himself. He does meet the girl, played by Maria Schneider, with whom he forms an attachment to. There's nothing seemingly revelatory about the experience, other than that for whatever reason he decides, Robertson is someone who's worth hanging around in. In one scene, Locke goes back to his old home after he has apparently died, and he gets to have a glimpse at what people think of his life after his death. He was someone, it seems. He did mean something to someone, but it was not enough for him to give up the ruse. So what is making him do all this? Well, we really honestly don't know. And it's another one of those unexplained mysteries that you often find in Antonioni's films. And it's this which people might find quite infuriating. You simply don't get the answers you are seeking for in his films. And this is shown in Antonioni's style. Take, for example, how he will draw you into a scene. A shot might remain fixed on a character as attentions begin to develop only for the scene to cut away when seemingly something is going to happen. You are snapped out of the moment to be dumped somewhere else with a vague feeling of missing out before having to tune into again to what you're seeing next. And it happens all the time in The Passenger. Sometimes as well, it's to, to make quite obvious points. We see at one stage Locke observing a wedding when the frame is filled with the bride's gown. We jump back in time to him being burning something in his garden. His character is clearly consciously making a connection between the wedding and his own memory of what happened to his. And through this cut, we get a fleeting glimpse into the character's psyche. But more, more often than not, Antonio just dispenses with the moment in favour of something else. He's interested in places, not necessarily the person. It might be a building or a location in general. And there are times in the passenger, it seems, he has little interest in scenes that are kind of essential to the plot, so to speak. 
Rachel with her lover played by Stephen Burkhoff or talking to an embassy staff member about what happens in a kind of shot with an uninterested detachment that we simply don't get in the location scenes where he seems to be clearly loving the camera work. And also in The Passenger, you get as close as you'll come to an Antonioni car chase. You must get the feeling he's playing with us, setting up the drama, only to remind us that such things rarely play out in real life as we expect. Yet make no mistake, The Passenger contains some of his most accomplished directorial work. The director of photography Luciano Tavoglio of Suspiria Frame conjures increasing incredible images of the desert and streets of Barcelona, and him and Antonio conspire for some inventive and playful camera work. We have flashbacks within the camera movements that for years have made me wonder how this was accomplished until I realised there was a brutal simplicity yet to it. Yet, they fascinate me. They're inspiring and unique. And was one of the reasons why I was enjoying this rewatch of Passengers so much. The climax of The Passenger is a masterclass in everything that has gone before. You may not even notice for the duration of the shot that there has been a single cut, and instead you can find yourself being lost in the soundscape of the film for clues as to what is playing out in front of you. But it certainly becomes a hook to re-watch the film again. It has improved me so much on these past two viewings. It's a reminder that sometimes we need to see a film more than once to really see and appreciate it. That being said, I would beseech anyone, if you haven't already, to go back and look at these earlier films. I like The Passenger, but in truth I do find Jack Nicholson to be a bit of a distraction of the film. Like I cannot disassociate myself, no matter how much I try and how much Antonio strips his performance back, that I'm watching Jack Nicholson. But all being said and done, it's a fascinating work that over just over two hours seems to fly by. And again, what you will get out of it will largely be what you bring into it. For me, The Passenger is kind of watching a fantasy of sorts seeing someone inhabit the other body of someone else that has a mirandering dreamlike quality. I don't often know where it's going, but like a lot of Antonio films, I simply like being along for the ride. Okay, so that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames cast. I will be in contact soon with the 2018 review show. You can find me in all the normal places. I'm on Twitter at 24 Framescast. You can find me on Facebook. I'm the Tom Jennings wearing a moronic England cricket hat in Italy. Um, just let me know if you do send a friend's request that you've done it so then I'll know that you're not some kind of random person who's going to try and convince me that a Nigerian prince has left me a million pounds and I just need to send £60,000 over the bank now but you know the kind of score um, you can find me on 24framescast.blogspot.com and uh, we will be returning with the Master of Cinema cast soon as well so many thanks for listening and I'll be in contact soon thanks, bye